Hi there, and welcome to The Chattering Hour with me, your host, Nicholas Vince. And speaking of hosts, this week I am joined by the voice of that ghoulish host with the most, actually probably moist, the Crypt Keeper himself, Mr. John Cassier. We talk about how he landed that role, Reefer Madness, the musical, voicing Elliot in Pete's Dragon, and much, much more right after this. And we're back with Mr. John Kazir, who voiced the Crypt Keeper in the TV series, a kids' animated show, and in the movies. John has nearly 300 IMDb credits and doesn't really seem to be slowing down. Let's get started. John, thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure. Cool. And I want to take, I'm going to take you all the way back to when you grew up in Baltimore. And I... <laughs> One of the original colonies. <laughs> that's Lord Baltimore. In Maryland. <laughs> So, you know, the Baltimore accent is based on the Cockneys that came off the ships. You know, I mean, it was influenced by that, you know. It was funny because John Oliver the other night was trying to, like, uh, Stephen Colbert was trying to get John Oliver to do a Baltimore accent. He's like, oh, I, he goes, oh, I wouldn't even start, you know. It's, I, I couldn't even begin. And I'm like, it's almost British. It's almost, it's almost Cockney. Everybody talks like this in Balmer. Balmer, Maryland, hon. You know, this guy, uh, you know, cracked his head open on the pavement and had to call the ambulance and the police and the whole deal. <laughs> yeah, it's a lazy palate, like a cockney. But uh, people are like, where did that come from? It's uh, you know, lazy palate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's extraordinary to me because, of course, to me, the cockney accent is the one where the jaw doesn't move. It's just locked. I mean, if you just yeah, don't right. move your jaw. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. Where it's and, and now, of course, the London accent is the most popular, or whatever that is. It's just a, you know. Uh, yes, yeah, the night because of the crown, and and yes, yes, they're terribly, terribly nice. Received pronunciation, as we called it at drama school. Um, we've already wandered off into voices. I thought we might do. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's where it all started, like you said, in Baltimore as a kid. So. Right. So right. when did the acting bug bite you? Or was it voices first? Or how did you kind of get into the whole thing? Well, you know, I mean, I was, I was, uh, you know, very creative kid, not very present, you know, put, people put things in front of me to learn. Um, I didn't really, you know, transpose that well. Um, but of course, entertainment was a really good way to get me to, you know, focus um, you know, I spent a lot of time, <laughs> I spent a lot of time addicted to cartoons, you know, as I mean, cartoons were obviously, uh, you know, kind of like the, you know, uh, kids first fix, you know, it's the closest yeah. thing to hallucinogenics a child can take, you know, with the merry melodies, <laughs> you know, and I would imitate all the stuff on the TV set. I had two brothers and two sisters who hated me for it, but I'd get down there on Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday mornings. Um, you know, back then you didn't have a remote control. It was a knob on the TV set with three channels. 
and uh, and the UHF, which you couldn't get unless you you know held the mirror up to the screen and fooled around with the antenna in the back or whatever. But um, you know, I I turned to the channel that I wanted to watch and then hide the knob. So uh, you know. But uh, I think by the time I got into, you know, I start, I really started loving it. I got into plays even when I was in elementary school. I loved doing that. I, um, you know, was dyslexic and they didn't really know what that was back then. They just said I was lazy and didn't pay attention and didn't do my work. And of course it was, to me, it was, you know, they'd be like, here, take this workbook home and fill in the blanks. And I was like, well, I can't read the sentences to fill in the blanks. You know, with five yeah. kids, my parents couldn't keep up on each one of us what was going, you know, at home and that kind of thing. And um, so, you know, it wasn't until like my second time in third grade that uh, I had a teacher who uh, was like, you know, he's really good when he gets up in front of people and he reads this stuff. He actually reads it. You know, I mean, it comes to life. And I remember reading some. I was just mentioning this to my wife yesterday because we were, because she's been teaching uh, part uh, as part of her, uh, you know, COVID work. Uh, mm -hmm. She's an actress, but um, teaching elementary school. They were talking about finding stuff for the kids to perform or read. And I was like, well, I remember my first thing was a poem about a giant with red shoes. I can't remember the poem exactly, but I remember that's what it was about. And I remember getting up front, right in front of the class and everybody was like, wow, he's really good. Ah, well, would he, you know, he becomes the giant and the whole thing, you know. And that teacher helped me, uh, you, know, um, you know, do better in school because mm -hmm. I was able to start orally doing my tests and this kind of thing. And, you know, by the time I think I was in like, you know, my last year of, of, of uh, you know, elementary school, which is oh. sixth grade for here in the States, you know, I was doing plays with my good buddy, Fred. And by the time we got into, you know, and we do all the talent shows, he'd wheel me out on a dolly and we'd do, you know, we'd do like black adder type stuff, you know, right. it wasn't black adder type stuff because we didn't know what that was, but, um, you know, to describe what you guys would know as a two guy team, you know, doing, stupid funny routines where I'd be a three-in-one machine and he'd sell me and I'd turn into a an orange juicer a uh you know a washing machine and a popcorn popper you know and stuff like that and 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 uh and I would do uh, this bit where I would do the Wizard of Oz and and I think back then probably took me 10-12 minutes to get through the movie I think I do it now in two and a half minutes you know with all the characters um but uh, by the time we were in high school, we wound up being the guys who did all the special morning announcements, you know. It's like, the following morning announcement brought to you by a grant from the Mobile Corporation. You know, and we do the, we do the beat. John, Paul, George, Ringo, hey, you're going to the gymnastics troupe uh, event tonight. You know, we'd imitate the teachers and we'd imitate, you know, and we'd have a blast. It was such a good time. Uh, I think we did like the fun drive for the yearbook. So they, they dedicated like a two page spread with everybody who had donated his names over top of us sitting at the microphones. And I think that was probably my first real, you know, performance crack at doing voiceover work. Um, up until then, most of it was stage uh, work as an actor. Right. And I had dreamed of being a stage actor, uh, you know, of course, you don't realize how little it pays, you know, uh, 
until you get to New York. I got my first off-Broadway show right out of college. Uh, you know, I studied theater at Towson University, which has a, you know, a great reputation. And, and, you know, I had people in my class like Charles Dutton, you know, who uh, people know as Rock, who had his own series and, and did a number of movies. Uh, what was he in? Which Aliens was Rock in? I can't remember. But, um, you know, and... Uh, and Dwight Schultz, who of course was Man Man Murdoch on the the A team, and you know, but you know, also did Broadway with you know Christopher of Blood with Maggie Smith and played right. you know Oppenheimer and Fat Man and Little Boy. You know, great actors. Uh, I we didn't go to school together, and we weren't never did any productions together. But he used to come back and do workshops with us. Was John Glover. Um, was uh you know had graduated from where i went to school so you know we we took ourselves seriously in the work we did but they were also colorful type actors uh that you had as as um your predecessors that kind of gave you a, an idea of where this, this could go um and uh i probably at that age was a better performer than i was an actor i didn't understand how to put myself into it as much as become other characters which has kind of served me as a voice actor as I've gotten older. But, um, and then of course my on-camera stuff as I've gotten older involves more of me in them because I am, you know, I've grown into my own age and character and know how to do that more, you know? Right. But, right. Um, you know, as those things go, you know, right out of college, you know, I got offered a, uh, a off-Broadway show uh, in New York, paid $175 a week, which, even back in 1980 um, was, you know, shit to get paid uh, to live in New York. I think yeah. I had three roommates, you know, <laughs> you know, in a one bedroom apartment, you know, uh, up in Spanish Harlem. Right. And, um, but eventually, you know, found street performing, you know, which, which, uh, you know, it was a good way when I wasn't getting theater gigs, which were very far and few between paid theater gigs. Um, I did a lot of sketch comedy and continued to do that kind of thing with a comedy group called Animal Crackers that had launched out of Baltimore. Um, and we had moved it all up to New York and uh, did, you know, tours for the USO where they sent us all over the world doing comedy for, you know, guys stationed on some island somewhere or you'd be in Athens one day for a couple of days and then you'd be on, you know, some little island called Lampedusa off the coast of Libya, you know, uh, performing for 14 Coast Guard guys, you know, and it was pretty, a pretty incredible experience. We got to see the world and, and, and it, you know, created my love of, of, of traveling the world. And uh, my wife and I love it. We go all over the place. Sadly, we don't get to do it right now, but no. um, I think we'd be in Scotland right now in Borthwick Castle or something, you know um doing one of their you know their famous dinners or something and you know where mary queen of scots tried to make her escape staying in her maid's quarters or whatever but um you know that's it, it really all these different things launched what has become my career defined my career you know from um having the opportunity to do different things that have kept me working for the last uh, almost 41 years now, steadily as an actor. Um, yeah, because, 
because I, you know, I, I know you back in 1985, you defeated Sinbad for best stand-up comic <laughs> on Star Search. So this was, so you were also doing stand-up as well as group work. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a strange story, and, and some people have heard it before, but not not a lot of people because it's it's almost a different. It's like our fan base from Tales from the Crypt is becoming a completely different age group because they were kids when they, we didn't know kids were watching the show. Of course, that the fact that they grew up with it makes them more passionate about it than the people who were adults watching it at the time. And HBO was new and newish, uh, newish, and um, so. Uh, you know, not everybody had it and that kind of thing. But I was, because I was street performing and had done sketch comedy, you know, I had like some bits that I could actually plug into a stand-up act. Right. You know, I remember my first couple of bit, you know, you know, routines going onto the stand-up stage and when people start yelling at you from the audience or something and you get hecklers, I didn't have any real way to deal with that because I kind of had an act act, you know what I mean? It was like yeah. set, you know, but, uh, you know, you say a few funny things like, uh, hey, lady, you know, uh, you seem like a classy woman. What do you put behind your ears to attract men? I mean, besides your knees, you know, psh, you know, stuff like this. And, you know, you either get laughs or you get booed off the stage, depending on how, the, you know, how defensive the audience was. But, you know, I hadn't really done stand up comedy, but I had gotten in an off Broadway show. That got a lot of it really I credit it for launching my you know, the career that's, that's continued throughout my, my, most of my adult lifetime. Uh, the show was called three guys naked from the waist down, which, uh, it was like a metaphor for how it feels in front of an audience when you're bombing as a stand-up comic. Right. And think of, uh, it being like dream girls, like the musical, uh-huh. but with stand-up comics. Right. So the entire cast was only three guys. And it was myself and Scott Bakula, who was who was pretty much unknown other than the theater world back then, and um, and Jerry Colker, who had come from doing Pippin on Broadway and Chorus Line, and he and Michael Rupert, who Michael Rupert was a big Tony Award winner, and you know played the lead in in March of the Falsettos and stuff like that. They wrote this show originally for themselves, but because they were so involved in writing it, they wound up casting it outside. Except for Jerry, wound up doing the part. Uh, of of uh, the angry comic and Scott played the quintessential MC and I played you know the Andy Kaufmanish suicidal you know would come out and record hanging himself on stage for a laugh and then walking off stage you know um, kind of stuff and it became a like the toast of the town for the for the run that we had and everybody assumed I was a stand-up comic because I was playing this very dark but very funny you know material was like you know robin williams it it was designed to be very very well polished but look completely improvised um and years later when i got to do improv with robin on stage uh at the improv in in la many years later i, I realized that that's was his genius was he had very polished a very intelligent man who had very polished material that he could improvise his way through and feed off of, which was what had transpired with my street act in front mm-hmm. of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, which was the premier place to have a spot. 
And, um, you know, you could have anywhere from, you know, a couple of dozen people when the weather wasn't good to 500 people sitting on the steps watching you perform. So um, while I was doing the show, Star Search was just launching its first season. And as they got towards the end of the season, they, they already had their people who were going to be competing for the semifinals in the first season, including Brad Garrett, who won uh, that year. And so they wanted some new comics to come in to start what would bleed over into the, into the second season. And I won. They asked me to do it. Now, at first, they, you know, I got approached and they were like, uh, we want you to come on to Star Search. And I'm like, well, I know this is a musical and I sing, but, you know, and Sam Harris, if any, if you know who he is, is like one hell of a singer. I mean, he's, mm. he, you know, creamed everybody in the first, you know, season of, of Star Search and went on to do Broadway and, and cut his own albums. And, you know, I mean, really, really talented singer. And I was like, you know, I can sing, but I'm not Sam Harris. They go, no, 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 we want you to come on as a stand-up comic. And I go, you know, I'm not really a stand-up comic, right? I'm just playing it in, in the play. They go, well, you can win $100,000. I went, have you seen my fucking act, man? Was... <laughs> so, you know, I started, I did everything from picking little bits of my act from when Fred and I used to do the morning announcements to doing the Wizard of Oz routine, to doing sketch comedy that I did with Animal Crackers, to part of my street act, and built these two and a half minute bits. Because every time you won, you had to do a new one. And I, I, I put together enough of them that I was able to continue to win through the season and come back in the semifinals and beat Rosie O'Donnell in the semifinals and beat Sinbad in the finals and win a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, and they're like, okay, you're going to be opening for Tom Jones in Vegas. And I was like, everybody's like, pat me on the back. Oh my God, you're going to open for Tom. I go, how am I going to do that? I have no fucking act. How am I going to open? <laughs> I was like, you know, I have these bits that I did, but I don't have an act. And they go like, okay, well, as an opening act, you only have to have 20 minutes. So you know, of course, they, people wanted to book me as a headliner and stuff, too. I had to have at least an hour, an hour and a half material. So I got my, you know, I got my ass into the clubs and I started working up my act. And um, because I didn't really have any jokes, per se, or, you know, I wasn't really a monologist. A lot of my act was characters and voices. And I, I my act was based on a guy who had grown up in the pop culture of television and had become addicted to it. And so he could change channels on himself, you know, and his, his attempt to, you know, refrain from breaking into television or watching television, he would, you know, Tourette's television and, you know, everything from, you know, Scotty, beat me out of here. I can't, Captain already got up to work factor H is going to blow. He's dead, Jim. Dang you and your green book and blood spark, you know, and, and then cut into the Wizard of Oz as mayor of the Munchkin City in the county of the land of Oz and go in and out of all these shows. And all of a sudden I'm getting cast in comedy pilots. And, you know, my first uh, series was first in 10 on HBO, um, which was their first series. And I played a Bulgarian field goal kicker who could kick 60 yard field goals, you know? Um, and if you know anything about American football, that's far. And, um, 
and it was just a really funny character. And it was it was uh, a show that launched careers. Uh, you know, Chris Maloney from SV, you know, from uh, Law and Order SVU was a quarterback on the show. Uh, Jason Begay, what, uh, a couple of seasons was a quarterback on the show who's on um, Chicago Cop. You know, this guy talks like this all the time. You know, um, uh, O.J. Simpson played the uh, the general manager. You know, and he was also a producer. And you know. Um, expert trying to bring origin, you know, bring reality to the show. So mm. that had that kind of feel to it. And we'd have all these football stars on the show as well. So, and they couldn't really give them like heavy acting things. So I would get like the funniest storylines. I mean, they put me in bed with women and they, you know, I'd, I'd be, Hey, I'm Zagreb Shkanuski. I kick field goals for the California Bulls. I fuck you both. Yes. You know, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Oh, she likes me, you know, um, and HBO knew that I, uh, did all these voices and characters and stuff and the casting from when they were starting to put together Tales from the Crypt contacted my agents and said, you know, we like John to audition. And I was like, you know, and I had read the comic books as a kid and I was just like, I can't, you know, I still even have like, these are all images from the original comic book characters, yeah, the good yeah. keeper, the old witch and the vault keeper, you know? But um, so I was like, you know, I just thought it was going to be some weird little cult show, especially HBO, since HBO wasn't like network. I mean, the, as much fun as I was having on First and Ten, I was frustrated by the fact that, you know, not enough people were seeing it to get any kind of acclaim or get me the next job and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was getting pilots and other network shows. Um, you know, I, I remember my first... Uh, my first network pilot was with Sid Caesar, you know, who was already in his seventies by then. And, but it was kind of like a Broadway Danny Rose, you know, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, uh, you know, the Woody Allen film where we all hung out in the deli with our agent and an old comic, you know, an old Vegas comic named Jan Murray played the, um, played our agent. And we had, you know, Maurice Hines from the Hines brothers on the show and, um, you know, and Annie Golden, who's, you know, from uh, Orange is the New Black, but she was also a big Broadway actress at the time, leader of the pack and all these great shows. And I played the young comic hanging out with all the older comics. And, uh, you know, so that's how people were viewing me. They thought mm. I was a stand-up comic, not, you know, not an actor who had come out of the theater. So it was kind of like fighting my way back onto the, getting acting work and uh you know when i went down to audition for for kevin yeager in his studio it was a real treat because i got to see all this stuff that he had created you know he was making the puppet for the crypt keeper but he also had you know designed freddy krueger's look and chucky and all these different things and i'm sitting in his studio like you talk about a kid in a candy store and i can see all you know preparing to audition for the Crypt Keeper and they're reading the puns and they're going, be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Oh, this stuff sucks. And I'm sitting there going, no, these guys don't get it. <laughs> I was like, this guy's, this is Shakespeare to this guy, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, all the alliteration reminded me of, of, you know, how much, uh, Alfred Hitchcock used to love to have those dark, alliterate, you know, alliterative intros into um hitchcock presents you know so i immediately thought to make him 
you know, give him a, a, a bit of British. And, um, you know, and then when I saw the puppet with all the holes in his throat and the rotting flesh and the teeth, you know, I wanted to give him the texture, you know, and juiciness of, you know, the character. And, uh, you know, and then I thought I'd give him a cackle, you know, kind of like the Wicked Witch of the West, you know, from having done that all those years. And, um, but it was as I was doing it for Kevin and he didn't really have a sound studio. He just had a boom box with a little microphone they clipped on so I could record for him on a, on a cassette tape while, and he, so he could listen back, you know, and play it with the puppet later and that kind of thing as he was auditioning everybody in the back of his studio and he had like clay sculptures all around you and stuff like that. So the scene was kind of set and I started doing it. Be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs> I'm doing this and, and he's like, he's laughing. He's like, you know, like, do more of that. Do more of that. And he's laughing and I start laughing. And I'm like, oh, great. The Crypt Keeper laughs at his own jokes. I love this, you know? So I, you know, continued to do that for him. And it, I don't think it was, it might've been even like the next day, but it was within a day or two that he had me doing it for Joel Silver and Richard Donner, two of the biggest in the, in the film industry uh, in their office. And they offered me the job in their office and they're going, okay, we'll see you on the set. And I'm just like, you know, you don't, as an actor, you don't believe that until somebody actually calls your agent books you and you have an, you know, you're actually doing it. It's like, ah, no, you know why we're doing that. Uh, you know, we got, uh, you know, we, we got Steve Buscemi while you were, you know, he wanted to do it. And so, you know, forget it. <laughs> so you mentioned going on the set. Did you actually record live on the set or did you pre-record the, the voice? Oh, we pre-recorded most everything because, uh, you know, A for the sound and B um, so that the, the, it took three puppeteers just to make the face work. So uh, you had more puppeteers if you had the feet working and of course the hands working and that kind of stuff. So on average, they had four or five puppeteers um, and as many as six to coordinate in that Buraku style of puppetry uh, to bring the, the Crypt Keeper to life. So they had to coordinate like a music video. So I would pre-record it, um, you know, uh, and Kevin would come in um, and in later years, also, I would have uh, Gil Adler, who, who became the producer on the show, who kept it on the on the air so many years um, with his expertise. But, um, you know, and I'd improvise a little bit, but I remember the first time we went in, I started going, all right, kiddies, blah, blah, blah. And Kevin's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They didn't give us much money for the Crypt Keeper to build him, so his mouth moves really slow and small. So can you make him talk slower. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make that adjustment. So if you look at the first season or two, the creep keeper talks slower and more ominously. <laughs> well, fear fans. You know, so it's, it's a little more creepy, but it's fun. You know, I really love that, that version of the Crypt Keeper. And then of course, as the show got it's a claim and, you know, we got to get a little more budget to polish it up. You know, Kevin put more servos in them. Those are the little hobbyist motors that they use for like model airplanes mm -hmm. and stuff. And, you know, was able to make him so we could give him more of that stand up kind of delivery that, you know, most people remember the Crypt Keeper as, um, which was more my, you know, my delivery. But um I love the way it evolved, you know, I mean, he, it, you know, eventually we had him doing impersonations of other people, 
you know, I'd be, I'd, I'd crack them up by doing, you know, the Crypt Keeper Stan, Stanley Kowalski and the Streetcar Named Desire. The next thing I know, it's, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the wraparounds or, you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, that, we're yeah. talking about some, somebody we, that we knew was a producer or somebody was dating a Playboy bunny and they go, I love a girl who'll give you head and then let you keep it. <laughs> you know, the next thing I know, it's a spot, you know. The grip keeper sitting there with a box of chocolates and a, and a and a dead you know corpse next to him and her head falls in his lap and he delivers that line and I'm just like oh this is great so it, you know it evolved so well over the years and you know honestly I really hadn't done much professional voiceover work before then so really it was the grip keeper people are like wow you know the grip keeper is your biggest well-known voice how long were you a voice actor before you got that part it was really my first big voiceover job and launched my voiceover career. And as you know, as an actor, as you get older, they're just, you know, you can get parts and probably you're, you're doing your best work. You're probably, there are less out there for you. It's more competitive because mm. the other actors are good too, that are still around and you get paid less for it. But as a voice actor, you're not typed out by your age, you know, you know, it used to be race. Now they try to stick with their race, but, you know, uh, gender or even whether you're, you know, even whether you're human or not, you know, I, you know, somewhere along the line after doing Miko, the raccoon for Pocahontas, it launched a whole second voiceover career for me doing animals and creatures and monsters and that kind of stuff. Um, everything from, you know, Miko the raccoon and I've been doing stuff for Disney on a regular basis they've been really good to me and um you know worked on Planet of the Apes doing apes and then you know on all the minion movies doing all kinds of little eastern european guys and stuff like that and then um got to do Elliot in the new Pete's Dragon and and just recently working on a new project for them um where I play a squirrel I won't mention the name of it cuz I don't know if I'm if I'm allowed to yet, but I, you know, they didn't tell me not to, most of them do, but this one was, was really great. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, a title character in it. And, oh, cool. um, you know, I, and most of those I got because I live in a wooded area where these animals live. So they're like, you know, it would take the squirrels to get my dogs all worked up. I have two border collies that go nuts when I do the squirrel. So it's, it's very funny. They go running around. They don't know it's me. They go running around looking out the window. So, <laughs> I was, you mentioned Pete's Dragon. I was going to ask you about that because I was watching it last night, funnily enough. And I was wondering because he doesn't have exactly words. No. You're, you're vocalizing his emotion so beautifully. So was this the kind of the reverse of Crypt Keeper? You were given the footage? It was in this case, yeah. Um, you know, the squirrel stuff like that I'm doing now, there's a lot of it that's already, uh, you know, people work different ways. Miko the mm. Raccoon, I recorded most of the stuff, probably 75, 80% of the stuff before they, you know, to storyboards before they animated any of it. Then they add stuff that you go back in uh, ADR, um, you know, um, add to later mm -hmm. to picture or to, to um, you know, moving drawings. Yeah. They may not have even fully animated it yet. Um, uh, and uh, 
the movie I just did with the squirrel, they had so much of it animated, but there was so much of it and so many different things that weren't filled in yet that we created a library of things that they could use and a number of different versions of each scene and that kind of thing. Pete's Dragon was really well done pretty far along and they were trying to do it with real animal sounds and lions and that kind of thing. But Oaks, the young actor who um, played uh, uh, Pete, you know, mm. was so good playing opposite a tennis ball on a pole that, you know, once they animated it, they realized that they needed something that was as alive as he was. And so um, they brought me in just to do some looping on another character that they needed just for a test audience because the actor, actor was in New Zealand or something. And, um, and it was a ploy to get me in so that they could go, can you take a shot at this, you know, dragon? Because they needed to convince people, of course, who have money and this kind of thing that you need to pay somebody to come in and do this. And so they had me do it. And of course, everybody was convinced that that's what it needed. And the editor I've known for years and years and years, uh, Lisa Churgan, who's an amazing editor, and she was um, she was insistent that they bring me in and, and try, you know, after we did what we did. And she and I spent a lot of time. I mean, normally it wouldn't have been that many sessions, but I think we had like 10, 11 full sessions um, doing all the uh, bringing him to life and, and coming up with his purrs and his you know, what he sounded like when he got fierce. And, and a lot of it I had to do. I mean, normally, you know, there's just, you lose, you know, you lose certain, when you manipulate your voice, you lose certain amounts of range and what you can do in it. So a lot of it I had them do in my range so that I could get all the different sounds and the emotions and then have them, you know, build it, lower it and build it into the sound. Um, so mm. that it matched the size of this creature, you know, and uh, which is which is really it was really a treat to do. It was, you know, and and luckily we were. It was mostly you know. There's a, a sound engineer over at Disney uh, goes by the name of Doc that we all know, and it was Doc, Lisa, and I doing most of that uh, in a room together uh, in a large sound stage together uh, for hours upon hours to get that right. So it's, it's not, that's not easy. And you, you know, sometimes when something's not working, they're like, no, I'm not hearing that. You know, you're, you know, you're breaking out into that sweat. It's like, okay. Uh, you know, and I, I think I've been fired from one job in my entire life, uh, you know, and, um, uh, but, there, but it, yeah, as you know, every actor thinks you're getting fired the first day yeah, and that you'll never work that, again. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing. So, you know, in those instances, you, <laughs> there's a certain amount of, relaxation in the idea that you know there's there's only a handful of guys in the whole business that could even do it <laughs> and i won't name who they are because i don't want them to go hiring them but <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure they say the same thing about me but um you know it's not it's not an easy task to bring across mm. so um you know i feel fortunate i feel fortunate to to you know continue to work in this business and make a living at it and, um, I was curious because you I mean I think obviously with the Disney stuff you've just described and you you, you alluded to it earlier on um, about the crypt keeper 
it was basically, you know, it's in the script, it's in the visual of the throat. And so do you have a process for finding a voice for a character or is it different every time? You know, it's got to be different every time because they give you different amounts of information. I'd say, you know, I get I get anywhere from, you know, a couple of auditions each week to a dozen, you know, I mean, um, voiceover stuff. And you get so little of it because there's so many good people out there now. Mm -hmm. And now working at home because of uh, the pandemic and whatever, I have I have more of an advanced studio set up. Um, than I needed before for my auditions because I really only had what I needed set up to to actually you know audition. Mm. Um, and now, of course, I've updated everything so that I can actually record, you know, over uh, you know the internet and stuff to their studio and do ADR on my computer screen and good mic and a soundproof room and the whole deal. And so. You know, and you get different things. Sometimes they give you a whole Bible that goes along with the with the character of what his background is, especially in games and stuff. They want you to understand his dynamic, and you know, and then and pictures, and then sometimes there's no picture. There's no. They have no, very little description of what they want. They just say he's this age and he's you know from here or not from there, and you know, and they probably get. 50 different versions of that and they listen to it and whatever one everybody agrees on <laughs> because you know very often you know you're probably one person sitting there going oh i just love what he did i just love what he did. everybody's like i'm not hearing it i'm not hearing it. you know so you know you don't know what you're dealing with in terms of that um you know as a result a lot of the work you get is you're requested for you know i mean i i was the original voice of deadpool um when he first went from page to games in all the ultimate alliance games and x-men legends and these games and they thought of me because of the crypt keeper because he talks to the camera he he's sarcastic and funny and you know but as he evolved he got bigger and more muscular and you know they they hired somebody who was you know had more of that kind of sound to it and you know and they hired me to play other characters, Pyro and whatever other characters that I came in to play. But, you know, nobody knew that Deadpool was going to become like a movie franchise and stuff like that. You know, so, um, you know, now, of course, more there are more people that appreciate the fact that I, did, that I voiced Deadpool than I ever did, you know, in the beginning. Um, uh, because of uh, who he, you know, what a great character is and where he's, become, you know, how he's evolved. But, you know as in everything, if you asked me early in my career, if I would, if I, if the, the thing that I'm the most remembered for is the voice of the crib keeper, I'd be like, what? The guy in the comic book? You're going to remember him? Is that maybe when I'm 80, <laughs> you know, you're going, you know, cause I loved, you know, I, they used to have a thing in ball. I mean, obviously when we were kids, we didn't have, we didn't even have videotape you know, so there was no videotape. There was no way to, to record the shows. You had to look at the guide, the newspaper guide. And my parents were too cheap to buy TV guides. So we'd have to look through the newspaper, you know, of the, you know, what's on TV. And, but I knew it, like, I think it was 4, 4.30, this, this movie came on every day called Twilight Movie in Baltimore, where I grew up. And 
they would have everything from a Doris Day movie to all the sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s, like, you know, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and Mothra and Ultraman, stuff like that. But they also had all the universal horror monster movies. And whenever those came on, forget it. I mean, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is still my favorite horror slash comedy. And, um, you know, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as Wolfman is still my favorite Wolfman. And, you know, Bella Lugosi is still my favorite vampire. And, you know, these things. And I would get these models. They had these models. I think uh, what was the Aurora models. I think the company was in. Yeah, you me too. I, yeah. Yeah. I think I still have the guillotine one, you know, on a shelf at my parents in my old, old, old bedroom. But the other ones, I think, you know, every kid gets to that age where they would go and blow up their models with uh, fireworks, you know, yeah. in a sandbox somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm sure that's that's the fate that happened to all my Frankenstein. But, you know, <laughs> I love that stuff. And I would I, I would always ask my mom if I could order stuff from the back of the comic books. You know, they'd have like a monkey in a teacup or, uh, you know, uh, you could order it's like, you know, sea monkey. Sea monkey, yeah. You know, and but they had a six foot cutout of Frankenstein you could order. Oh, do you remember the submarine? You could yeah. order a submarine, a two-man submarine. I'm like, what the hell? There's no way. First of all, I wouldn't get in a submarine. Where am I going to go down to the reservoir and put the submarine in there and drown? You know, it's like, it was probably cardboard <laughs> or something. I don't know. And how can they afford to give it to you for $18? You know, it's like. There's, there's a book. There's a book. Somebody's found them all and found photographs of the, I found, like, where they show you what you actually got for your money. And you're absolutely oh, right. The I submarine was made it. out of cardboard. <laughs> I gotta find that. I gotta find that. If you, you know, send me the name of the book if you can find I will, it. Or, I will. Or, yes, I will. Please do, it do. that. That would be. I would just. That wouldn't even just go go up on my my. That would be like you know sitting on my coffee table all the time, or 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 at least next to the toilet or something. You know, somewhere <laughs> somewhere where people would have to see it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I was fascinated to read and, and uh, when I was researching your work you mentioned you started off in the theatre but you've also done theatre recently you've done musicals recently you've done Reefer Madness the musical <laughs> on both Which stage maybe and the most film. fun I've ever had in my whole career you know I mean where, where I know Three Guys Naked was really the thing that launched my career from being somebody who like could get hired occasionally to wow, that guy could do a lot of different things. Um, Reefer Madness was one of those, those uh, things that showed that, you know, you could hang with, with some of the best. And, um, you know, I got a call from Andy Fickman, who was the director, and Andy's gone on to direct all kinds of movies for Disney and, and some other, and series on the Disney. You know, I mean, he's, he's really accomplished. At the time when I first met Andy, he was uh running the development department for for um uh met uh, a bit uh bet midler and um wow. you know and she was trying to develop stuff with comedians and stuff like that and andy and i had a mutual friend and he, he called me and, and met with him and we got on immediately you know he had a great sense of humor and we were laughing and stuff like that so i was I was in the middle of, I don't know, I was doing a bunch of different stuff. We're talking about 1998. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. When we first started in LA, maybe even earlier than that. And um, 
you know, Andy calls me and he goes, Hey, you know, I got this, this musical, these guys, they, they like knew your work from three guys naked when they were in college and they love you. They actually wrote this character for you. And this is, you know, it's based on reefer badness that we all saw in elementary school. And they actually showed it to us as if they thought it was get us off drugs. But, you know, of course it became the movie to go get high and go see and laugh at, but you know, it wasn't really, the character wasn't fleshed out yet in the, in the thing. And I was just like, you know, Andy, I got a lot on my plate right now. And at the time I was, you know, doing more than one series and, you know, um, and, and really staying busy and, and, you know, which doesn't allow you to go do theater for free or $7, a, you know, a night to pay for your cab fare or whatever it was. And um, he goes, listen, this is going to be a lot of fun. And, these, and there's a lot of good people involved. And I said, okay, I'm in. So we started in some little 99 seat theater. And as soon as we put the show up overnight, it, it became like the thing to go see in LA, which no theater thing ever at that time was something that you went to see that everybody had to go see in LA. And so it, it not only launched a rash of, you know, kitschy uh, musicals based on B movies or, you know, old horror movies or, you know, whatever, like reanimator and that kind of stuff. But it, I, it ran on and off for two years in a small little 99 seat theater. And many people who have gone on, you know, who are Broadway actors and, you know, big actors would come and go just because they wanted to be in it, you know, or to come play a part. Like when I went to do, um, I, I went to Australia to do the Three Stooges movie for Mel Gibson. We did the, the biopic of the Three Stooges movie. Um, you know, uh, you know, there was a, a really great actor who came in and filled, filled in for me, you know, um, on stage. And I've made some lifelong friendships in that. And then it went on to, then all of a sudden they, they decided it was going to go to off-Broadway in, in, uh, uh, 2001 and sadly five days before three five days before we opened September 11th happened in New York and um, we were downtown I was living downtown half a mile from you know ground zero and um, it was just not a good experience it was sad it was I mean we still put the show up because people wanted to see stuff they want you know people were stuck in the city and people wanted to go see something I remember opening night we had Leslie Stahl there and you know um, Paris Hilton and you know who wasn't you know Paris Hilton yet mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> you know and all these people that were you know we were down near the NYU campus so all the students were coming to see the show and you know, it didn't, it, it wasn't going to last because without tourists coming into the city and mm -hmm, Broadway mm -hmm. really, you know, was, which is shut down now was the, that was the first time it had been shut down and, um, and uh, which was really sad. Mm -hmm. So it was, that was a difficult time to do that show, but, you know, again, not everybody from the LA cast was brought in. They wanted to keep some, you know, they wanted to give it the New York austere. They wanted to, you know, and I was lucky enough to keep my part, but it was, it had been so specifically written for me by Dan and Dan Studney and Kevin Murphy, who were the writers of the show that it was, and Andy, of course, who was still directing it. And then um, Bob Greenblatt, over, who was running Showtime at the time, who was just one of my heroes in the business in terms of the shows that he was, he's, did I freeze? The sh uh, shows that he's been involved in and the, and the networks that he's, 
you know, brought to life, um, you know, wanted to, to, he's always loved musicals. In fact, I think he started out as a concert pianist, pianist and, you know, wound up, you know, being producers of, of H, you know, shows for HBO, like the, uh, you know, the Sopranos and, and then of course running Showtime and running NBC and, you know, create, you know, bringing Dexter to television. I mean, all these great shows. And, um, you know, he decided he wanted to make it, you know, shoot it as a movie musical. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to keep my part and we get, they got great people for that. I mean, yeah. you know, they, uh, Alan Cummings and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Nev Campbell so and Anna Gasteyer was hysterical and Amy, Amy Spanger and, you know, and of course, Kristen Bell, who had done it off Broadway with us, you know, she and I had so much fun doing our scenes together. We had so much fun making that movie. I mean, truly, you know, because it's, you know, where a theater piece, you you rehearse most movies, you don't, as you know, you show mm. up on this, especially if it doesn't have a big budget and they go, okay, this is going to be your wife. And you're like, oh, how do you do? Okay. Um, you know, now you, you've been together for 30 years, go. You know, um, we got to, of course, because they re-choreographed everything. The, we had to pre-record the music. We had to restage everything, new actors, the whole thing. It was a process like doing a, a real play. Um, so that was a real treat. And we, you know, we had a great time up in Vancouver all together shooting that. And um, again, more lifelong friendships. And um, every time I watch it, it's just, I mean, I don't watch it that, get to watch it that much. It's not one of those things I go back and watch all the time. But I go, you know what? They did a really nice job with this. <laughs> it was really fun. It was well, another little musical that somebody posted on my Facebook page that I had done years ago. In fact, we were in the middle of shooting it when the OJ Bronco chase scene took place and we watched it wow. on a little, little monitor on the cameraman's thing. And, you know, cause I had worked with OJ, it was like, OJ, what the hell are you doing, man? You know, just like, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what was going on, but uh, called uh, monster mash, which of course was based on a play that Bobby Pickett, who wrote the monster mash, it is the mash, the monster oh, yeah, mash. Yeah. You know, Bobby died way too young, but he was still alive at the time. And he had written a play called The Bridge is Out. You'll have to spend the night. And it's basically a story of these two kids that are out on Halloween night, dressed up like Romeo and Juliet. And they, they their car breaks down and the bridge is washed out. And there's this big old house next to them. And of course, in that house is, you know, Dracula, and his wife and, um, you know, somebody who's trying to revive Elvis and needs, you know, the, the young girl's soul and there's the wolf boy and, you know, and his mother played by Mink Stoll. And, you know, I mean, and I played Igor opposite Bobby Pickett's, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, Igor, you want the woman? Yes, master, please, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> And we had so much fun doing that. And that was done on like, I don't know, $250,000 budget or something, maybe not even that much. And it came out so good. I had, you know, I hadn't even thought about that movie in a long time. Somebody had posted it on my, my, um, you know, Halloween had posted it on my Facebook page and I, I took a look at it and I was like, you know, this was really fun to do. And it came out really good. I mean, we had like, you know, Carrie Ann Inaba, who was on Dancing with the Stars, was one of our dancers in it. And, and the choreographer, you know, who played the Wolf Boy was Adam Shankman, who's gone on to 
you know, direct movies like House Party and all this stuff. I mean, those really had great, uh, great time with it. Again, with a great cast. Tony Award winner Anthony Crivello played Dracula, you know, who won Tony Award for Kiss of the Spider Woman. And Oh, yes, yes, yes. Gosh. You know, who's one of my dearest, oldest friends. And um, it's just, it was just really amazing. We had a good time. Wow, wow. Um, this time has flown past so fast, um, but I really would like not to let you go. Gosh, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, English. Um, Sorry, English. <laughs> you, just, um, you, just, you just did it as a Spaniard in English. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask the Crypt Keeper, what luggage would you take with you on your final journey? Um, if I said to you, okay, you're just about to take that last big adventure and you've been told you've got to take your own entertainment, what movie would you take with you? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. You know, um, it's going to be a weird toss-up, but it's a toss-up between A Clockwork Orange and Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, well, there's two different films, both British filmmakers, both British yeah. stars in that British productions, one of whom's been on The Chattering Hour before, yes, Malcolm. Uh, why, why those two? Or you one know, of those I don't two? Know. I, was, I loved, I mean, even before people, you know, Clockwork Orange became you know, like a mainstay, um, uh, you know, cult film on a, you know, on an international level, mm -hmm. you know, I was living in New York when it was first released and, you know, and I remember seeing it, I'm like, you know, this is, this is really not that far from what's happening in England right now with the punk scene. And, you know, this is really, this really is visceral and, but it's entertaining and I'm mm. sure there are people that won't find it entertaining because it's disturbing and it's got incredible actors and I love Stanley Kubrick and I love the, you know, and everything about it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, probably in my younger days, it probably, I probably watched that movie more than anything, you know, oh, other than the wizard of Oz, which of course right. there, you could throw that in as a third part okay. of the toss up, but um you know, there are movies that I love to watch over and over again, and then others that you just remember so well, but you you don't really feel the urge to go back and see them. Yeah. But for yeah. some reason, there was always something in that that just, you know, it was it was a a morality play. It was, you know, something way beyond its time. It was a musical. It was a you know, it's got so much in it. It's good against evil. You know, um, you know. Malcolm McDowell is, you know, still one of my favorite stars ever, you know, and, um, you know, all these different things about it. Um, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is just one of the best epics ever made. I mean, it's, you know, by the time you finish watching it, you could go back and, you know, the history that is involved in it too. And my, and, and both my parents' ancestry are from the Middle East. Um, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was interesting to see, you know, what little we know about the Middle East revealed in that movie in such a colorful way. I mean, they just don't make epics like that anymore, no. you know, no. just, you know, not, not unless it's completely computer generated.
Yeah. And, you know, it was nothing computer generated about that movie. Those, every single one of those extras was there on, you know, on the desert and every single one of those camels and every single one of those, this and that. And it's just amazing. And the soundtrack is amazing. And, you know, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And I remember, I remember it, watching it when it first came out on the big screen and I kind of would love to see it again, but not on the small screen, you know, 23 inch screen we have at home. You need it to be on a, yeah big something that's huge what uh what book would you take with you uh well wouldn't be war and peace <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be the book that you mentioned that has all the different little things in the back of the comic book yeah. that yeah. um uh you know i always loved john irving you know i always loved I always loved like, you know, the world according to Garp and um, Hotel New Hampshire because the characters were so rich and you kind of live through them as you read it. Um, you know, that's a tough one. You know, I'd probably, I'd probably take a medical book with me because I love, you know, um, I love, I, I love self-diagnosing shit, you know, it's like... <laughs> You're like, oh, God, my earlobes itch. What's that all about? <laughs> oh, well, no, I could have some kind of weird kind of, you know, kidney thing that's affecting my ear. You know, it's just like, it just, it makes your re- imagination run wild. So that, yeah. that, that could be something really fun. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I could just picture the crypt keeper going yeah, through a <laughs> what about a, What about a musical album? Uh gosh there's so many good ones um you know it's funny because even though i've done a bunch of you know musicals uh, the last musical big musical that i did was at lincoln center um the glorious ones written by lynn aarons and steve stephen flaherty who wrote ragtime and once on this island and you know anastasia and and, and that kind of thing really about a comedia troupe in the in the you know in the 14th century um and a Flaminio Scala, and I played the Dattori, you know, and I got to do all my pantomime and stuff that I used to do on the street, which was kind of fun. And it always wanted to work at Lincoln Center. So that was, you know, a real treat. And that soundtrack is really incredible. But I don't like to listen so much to the stuff that I was in. But, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar has always been one of just one of the most amazing soundtracks ever to listen to in terms of a musical. And I know that's more of an opera than a musical, but at the same time, you know, it it's is. Lloyd then, Webber. Yeah. 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 And there's Lemiz, you know, I mean, Lemiz is, can take you, you can listen to it over and over and over again, and it can take you someplace different just listening to it. Yeah. So the, those are a toss up, you know, okay. obviously I like the things that have complexities to them that, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I'm yeah. sure some people that just love Rocky Horror Picture Show because then they'd act it out every time they played it, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can get that. What about um, a food or beverage? Uh, Maryland blue crabs are my favorite. Had them on my birthday last week. Um, I grew up eating, you know, the steamed crabs. They steam with this ah, hot. Right, ice, right, right. You know, um, and... Uh, you know, it, it brings back my childhood. It brings back, you know, and it's my favorite food. I, I mean, for sure. Right. Um, not easy to travel with, but um, <laughs> not as easy to say like beef jerky, but um, you know, uh, 
that's yeah for sure yeah. and okay. a good um you know i drink beer with those but uh but there's nothing like a good um rhone style blend um as something to drink so okay okay and what about a piece of visual art a piece of visual art um probably this piece right here this is uh this was done by a uh, friend mora masakudo who's a uh a famous and infamous Japanese artist who used to be my neighbor years ago. And this is, this is one of his original pieces. This is poetry. Wow. He does a bunch of, of prints and stuff too. You, you, in fact, you probably, you know, go into most sushi bars and you see his work because he's so revered um, with his work, but this piece is haunting and it's, it's because uh, uh, my wife's teaching downstairs. I'm actually in our, in our spacious bedroom. Um, and it sits next to our bed. And when I wake up in the morning, I feel like I'm under this big um, plum tree every day. Wow. Um, wow. He's always been one of my favorite artists. I've always loved Erte, but um, that was kind of, you know, I mean, that was kind of more of a uh, youthful style of artist. You know, I've mm. always loved Picasso, always loved. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, Vincent van Gogh's stuff is so... How do they pronounce his name in, in England? You know, because in America, everybody's like Vincent van Gogh. And you, if you go Vincent, Vincent van Gogh, they're like, well, yes, I was in Amsterdam. And that's how they pronounced it. So, you know, but uh, it's kind of like the, you know, is it Porsche oh. or Porsche? Yeah. You know, it, uh, <laughs> Vincent, Vincent van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. I, we, we were watching a documentary on him the other day and now of course my mind is freezing but I'm pretty certain it's Van Gogh when yeah. uh, when the nice gentleman from the museum the Vincent Van Gogh museum was saying his name I swear it was a fantastic yeah 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 uh, but I do love the impressionist I, I mean Botticelli is I mean is not an impressionist but it, probably my favorite museum to go see art in is still the the Uffizi in Florence um, because of the the Botticelli's and you know of course the proximity to going in to see the um, the David and um, you know so the Renaissance art is I mean you could walk through a museum and go uh, been there done that if you looked at any one of those paintings by itself you'd be like oh my god but when there's a whole museum of them you're like yeah that's a you know another guy on a horse there's another <laughs> yeah oh great another renaissance jesus you know and you go by and then all of a sudden there's something that stops you and you're like holy crap you know god you know there is a god and you know and you sit and look at that work and it it just you know it takes you and um botticelli's work has always done that for me right right i i have a tip if you ever want to we were once left with an hour to do the whole of Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which is a good two, two and a half hours. But we had an hour and we worked out it was going to be 30 seconds a picture. So literally you work, it was look at it, stare at it. Okay, what can I get? Okay, it's 30 seconds, you've got to move on. And it was just the most extraordinary thing because you, you were, re you, I was looking, I was really, really, really looking at it because I thought I can't just gaze or, you know, do anything. I've got to really concentrate on this and yeah. really try and understand it. Quality instead of quantity, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. My yeah. wife and I did that a couple of years ago. We went in the middle of winter, I mean, between like early December when we knew it, 
other people wouldn't be traveling, but we went to all the Christmas markets in, you know, different parts of Europe and Munich and Paris and England and, and, um, uh, sure. Edinburgh and, you know, these different things. And we went into, I mean, literally spent, we had an hour and a half or something in the Louvre, the Louvre. And, um, you know, of course we had to fight through the, uh, the tourists just to sit and look at, you know, the Mona Lisa for a short amount of time. But, you know, we just decided we would go see a few things and just spend the time doing that instead of trying to see all we could see. Yeah. 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 Extraordinary. And we just finish up one, one luxury, one, one thing that's not mentioned above anything that you just, that little piece of pleasure. Uh, it's either nail clippers or pornography. Um, <laughs> I'm not or an inflatable, oh, inflatable love doll. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, um, God, that's a tough one. Boy, uh, a luxury. Well, being the television addict that I am, I guess I would take, uh, well, you know, I mean, it was certainly, uh, gosh, that's really a tough one, a luxury item. You know, um, hmm. We can, channel, we can we can install cable in your crypt. There you, you go. Know, okay. Yeah, I think we'll you know, give you cable and an endless supply of guides and so on. Yeah, you know what I want, I want, I want, uh, dish TV so that I get like the full NFL package. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. You know, it, it would probably be really nice clothing. I, I, I always like, I mean, I don't get to dress up anymore. Like I, I had my wife for my birthday, get me tra a, tra a really nice track suit because I was tired of sitting around in my pajamas. And I was like, at least I could just look like one of those guys that are so wealthy that all they wear is track suits. You know, like, uh, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like like the actor in, in uh was it uh, black as black as fuck or whatever you know it's like i don't know if you've seen that show but he's you know he always uh, try to be he's older but he's trying to you know try to keep up with the the younger right 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 black create creatives and he wears like the gold chain and the track suits of course they're like gucci track suits they're all like three thousand bucks and stuff but <laughs> you know i got my my Ralph Lauren and it matches right, right, right. the crypt hat. So absolutely cool. But I always love really nice sweaters and nice clothes. Like, you know, when I go to England, I always try to, you know, or to Ireland, I always try to get like a, you know, a nice um, cashmere sweater or something that. Uh, that ah, yeah. Sweaters came up from, when I was talking to Amanda Weiss, a sweater came up as a, as a, as a choice. And yeah, I get that. John, this has been extraordinary. I have enjoyed myself so much. Thank you very yeah, much. Glad. You ask good questions. You know, it's like you usually get a lot of the same questions and I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you about it. It's, um, it's brought up a lot of memories and, you know, I, I, I still feel like a young man in, in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I, it, it makes me feel like I have a certain level of accomplishment of what I set out to accomplish as a person and use my, you know, Somebody who, who who struggled as a student as a kid, you know, 
to find something that you know you feel like you can excel in and also to um you know make a living at something mm. you love doing and I, I really feel fortunate that i worked hard for it and continue to work hard for it but you know i think pe some people just go well i deserve to do this and i deserve to be that you know kind of like our you know i won't get political forget it um yeah. but you know what i'm saying be careful what you ask for you may get it <laughs> wow that was extraordinary you know there's a no prize for working out the number of voices that john did during that interview quite extraordinary what a wonderful man and next week i'm joined by the wonderful and lovely amanda weiss from a nightmare on elm street silverado and much more join me then and in the meantime be safe and well the Chattering Hour is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West, composer Kevin McLeod. 